adds molasses and craps out halfway through. Finally, he said, you've downloaded the song only to discover it was encoded poorly and the last few seconds have been cut off. After 15 minutes, the user gets a clean version of the song. Jobs brilliantly put that time into perspective. He said, what that means is you'll spend an hour at that rate and you'll get four songs, four songs that cost under four bucks from Apple. And you calculate that you're working for under minimum wage. Jobs then challenged the notion that consumers would balk at paying 99 cents a song. How much is 99 cents, he said. Well, how many of you have had a Starbucks latte this morning? That's three bucks. That's three songs. How many lattes got sold across the U.S. this morning? A lot. 99 cents is pretty affordable. And finally, Jobs listed the benefits, the hero of downloading songs on the new iTunes Music Store. On his slide, the following text was revealed. Fast, reliable downloads, pristine encoding, previews of every song, album cover art, and finally, good karma. In 10 minutes, Jobs had completely transformed the mindset of those people who did not believe in paying 99 cents, let alone any price, for songs they were already downloading free. Remarkably, the text from the Steve Jobs introduction of iTunes, when run through the Flesh Kincaid grade level tool, returns a grade of four, meaning a fourth grader could follow along and understand the problems and solution that Steve Jobs had explained. The next time you face a skeptical audience, paint a picture of the villain before you introduce your product or service, the conquering hero. The villain hero narrative simplifies the problem your idea solves, and if you use simple words, you might be surprised at just how quickly your idea catches on. Steve Jobs once said simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean to make it simple, but it's worth it in the end because once you get there, you can move mountains. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and other inventors of our time do move mountains, and they often carry their message with simple stories simply told. The Storyteller's Secret You may have the greatest product in the world, the greatest ideas, but if people cannot understand the problems they solve, they'll never buy into your ideas. Storytellers introduce heroes and villains to simplify the story, and they craft the message in words that are so simple an elementary school student can understand them. Chapter 23. An Entrepreneur Makes Shark Tank History Storytelling is everything. Show me an MBA and your sales numbers, that's fine. But tell me a great story about how you got started and your vision, and we'll talk. Barbara Corcoran, Shark Tank. Like many children his age, six-year-old Charles Michael Yim decided to open a lemonade stand on the curb outside of his family's house. Yim would continue to display a knack for entrepreneurship. In middle school, Yim's friend gave him a free basketball trading card. Yim traded the card for three others, flipped those over, and soon he had amassed 1,000 trading cards without spending a dime. And the cards had a real value. One happened to be Michael Jordan's rookie trading card. Showing an early penchant for a dramatic performance, Yim brought the cards to a store that allowed kids to trade cards. Yim came armed with a story and a hook. He put the cards in brown bags and charged $4 for each bag. The hook, one of the bags, contained a valuable card worth much more than $4. Finding that other kids responded to the possibility of winning a golden ticket, he did the same with other sought-after cards and, by the time he finished middle school, had made $5,000. Fast forward to September 2013. Now 30 years old, we find that Yim still has a flair for the dramatic, though now the stakes are a bit higher. 
He's asking for an investment of $250,000 on ABC's Shark Tank, the American Idol-style show for entrepreneurs. His pitch revealed several important components of effective storytelling, and here's how it went. Hello, Sharks. My name is Charles Michael Yim, and I'm the founder and CEO of Breathometer. Just imagine you're at a dinner party, or at a tailgate, or at a bar with some friends, having some champagne. Would anybody care for a glass? You know how it goes. You eat some food, have some drinks, before you know it, the night's over, and it's time to go home. The most important question is, are you safe to drive? Who would want to carry around one of these bulky old breathalyzers? That's why I created Breathometer. It's the first smartphone breathalyzer. It's so small, it can fit into your pocket. Let me show you how it works. Simply retract the audio jack, plug it into a smartphone, activate the app, and breathe into the device. Within a matter of seconds, you'll be able to know what your breath alcohol level is. Better yet, it will tell you how long it'll be to sober up. And if need be, you can even hail a cab with the push of a button. Please join me on this mission to help people make smarter, safer decisions one breath at a time. For the first time in Shark Tank's history, all five sharks invested in the company to the tune of $1 million. Mark Cuban invested $500,000 in the company, and the remaining four sharks combined contributed another half million. The Storyteller's Tools Yim has refined the breathometer story over thousands of pitches and conversations. He, too, has learned that simplicity is the key to telling a compelling story. He says it doesn't matter how advanced, how scientific your company is. If the average consumer or investor is trying to understand your business, you need to boil it down to the most basic fundamentals for anyone to understand. Yim's product is a breath analysis platform, but you may have noticed in the pitch that he never used jargon, nor did he use the more technical definition. According to Wikipedia, breath analysis is, quote, a method for gaining non-invasive information on the clinical state of an individual by monitoring volatile organic compounds present in the exhaled breath. Whew, that's a mouthful. Now, instead, Yim relies on narrative. What he's doing is transporting his audience to the bar where they've had a few drinks with friends. In February 2015, Yim was handed another golden opportunity to make the pitch of a lifetime. And once again, he came out on top. Yim was one of three entrepreneurs who were invited to pitch their startups to billionaire Richard Branson at Branson's home on Necker Island. This was part of the Extreme Tech Challenge, the event I talked about in the introduction, in which a group of innovative entrepreneurs pool their talents and resources together to advance startups that have the potential to improve the world. In spite of Yim's Shark Tank success, the road to Necker had been a long one. Out of 2,000 original entries, 10 finalists were invited to pitch their startups in person at the Consumer Electronics Show in January 2015. The top three were selected to take the trip to Necker to pitch Branson. Yim won Branson's heart and his wallet. When I spoke to Charles Yim, he said, whether it's Shark Tank, Richard Branson, or any other meeting, I need to be able to clearly articulate, communicate exactly what we are trying to build, whether it's a product or a service. The value proposition must be clear. If it's not crystal clear, you'll lose people in the first five minutes. Yim represents the young guns in business today. These are men and women in their 20s and 30s who are tired of dry, boring, unemotional presentations. They realize the power of story to help them get their ideas across. Yim tells a product story successfully because he breaks down the narrative into smaller, digestible chunks. It's a lot like fitting a ship in a bottle. How do you put a ship in a bottle? 
The ship, usually models of ancient sailing ships, are actually built before they're put into the bottle. So think of the bottle as a person's mental capacity and the ship as the story. The bottle's capacity doesn't change. It's the ship that must be made to fit. Most of us who see a ship in a bottle are left in awe. We're amazed that it can happen. What we don't see is the hours of detailed craftsmanship that went into building it. The hull is bigger than the opening, so it's not made from one piece of wood. It's built in parts, the upper and lower half of the hull. Next come the keel and the rudder. Masts and booms are also constructed. The artists use a sketch pad to draw rendering of the ship, and then they layer the pieces of wood and toothpicks onto the drawing. The ship is constructed outside of the bottle and is carefully collapsed and fed through the opening little by little, piece by piece. Once inside, then it is expanded to fill the space. Small details of the ship are then fed in piece by piece and reassembled. Think of the ship as your story. There are many parts to the story. Mass, boom, sails. The entrance to the bottle, that tiny opening, is the working memory or the short-term brain capacity of your listeners. The entire ship cannot fit through at once. So you feed the story to your listener in small component parts. Once complete, the listener can see the narrative from start to finish, and they understand how the parts all fit together. The story can set sail and open up new worlds for you and the audience. The Underbelly of a Great Commercial Charles Michael Yim successfully can grab an audience's attention, as he did on Shark Tank, in just 60 seconds. As it turns out, the best Super Bowl spots do the same. According to Johns Hopkins researcher Keith Cuisenberry, people are attracted to stories because we're social creatures and we relate to other people. Cuisenberry studied 108 Super Bowl commercials, and he accurately predicted which spot would score highest among consumers. He predicted that a Budweiser commercial would score the highest rating because it was like a mini-movie, which told a complete story in 60 seconds. The ad was called Puppy Love. The commercial begins with a setting of a small house with a white picket fence and a sign that reads, Warm Springs Puppy Adoption. An adorable puppy, a yellow Labrador, climbs out from beneath the fence to visit his friend, a Clydesdale horse in the adjoining barn. On the day the puppy gets adopted, the horse chases the car down as the puppy is seen barking at the horse from the back seat. The horse jumps the fence and is joined by the other Clydesdale horses to stop the car. The two friends are reunited at the end, and they play together in the pasture. The YouTube video of that spot received nearly 60 million views. Remarkably, Cuisenberry made his prediction two days before the Super Bowl on February 2, 2014. The underbelly of a great commercial, according to the research, is not whether it has animals or sexy models. A great commercial tells a story. Cuisenberry predicted that commercials that squeezed an entire story in 60 seconds would turn out to be the winners, and the Budweiser commercial came the closest to doing it. He was right. The ad earned the top spot in USA Today's ad meter, a gauge of viewer engagement. Yim and other entrepreneurs who achieved an extraordinary degree of success do so because, one, they build products that solve real-world problems, and, two, they've learned to craft a compelling narrative lasting as little as 60 seconds. They also remind us that no generation has a monopoly on storytellers. Entrepreneurs in their 20s and 30s are often dynamic storytellers because they are driven by mission, passion, and purpose. They've also grown up in the era of YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, Telling a succinct, simple story comes second nature. Great storytellers come in all ages. The Storyteller's Secret 
Storytellers who simplify complexity speak succinctly. They practice their pitch until they can tell a compelling story in as little as 60 seconds. Part 4. Storytellers Who Motivate Chapter 24. Find Your Fight You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. Steve Jobs Darren says, My parents divorced when I was 18 months old. My mother didn't want me, so she gave me up to my father. My dad was only 24 at the time, so he didn't really know what to do with me either. Today, Darren Hardy is one of the great storytellers of his generation. He brings in more than $1.5 million a year in speaker's fees and, as the publisher of Success Magazine, is one of the foremost experts in the study of human achievement. It will not surprise you, by this time in the audiobook, that there is a link between his humble beginnings and Darren Hardy's great success. Hardy's feelings of abandonment is the reason why he is, quote, vigorously self-reliant, self-motivated, goal-oriented, and results-driven. Many people have suffered through similar issues as children and continue to cart those wounds with them through adulthood. But Darren Hardy chose to turn adversity into an advantage. He says, my dysfunctional childhood is the reason why I'm the functional achiever that I am today. Today, Hardy readily shares the stories of his childhood with his audiences. He compares his father to Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Stanley Kubrick's movie, Full Metal Jacket. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, Hardy recalls his dad saying. Hardy didn't always shine a spotlight on his childhood. In fact, he told me, I'm not a natural storyteller. I had to work at it. It was only after years of studying communication and persuasion did Hardy realize he had to revisit his childhood and give it a starring role in his public presentations. People don't want to hear about your success until they know you understand their failures, says Hardy. By talking about your own failures and struggles, you make an emotional connection with your audience. You become accessible and relatable, he says. Once you make an emotional connection, you can take them where you want them to go. The Storyteller's Tools Hardy believes that the human brain evolved to provide the tools to survive. It also hides a great secret to achievement, motivation. He says you can hack your ancient brain and use it to give you superhuman powers. All you have to do, according to Darren Hardy, is find your fight. Everyone needs a worthy adversary, according to Hardy. David had Goliath. Luke Skywalker had Darth Vader. Apple had IBM. Then Microsoft. A good enemy gives you a reason to get fired up. A nemesis pushes you to reach deep and to use your skills, talents, and abilities to their fullest. Having to fight challenges your character and resolve. A fight will lead you to push harder, go further, and hang on longer than you would have otherwise. The Fight the nemesis, the villain. Every great story has one, and every great life story has one too. Inspiring leaders revel in their failures, and they embrace their struggles. The question is, why? Why must tension and triumph be present in all great stories? Why must we as humans experience struggle to build a strong central character in our own life's narrative? Just as pressure gives the diamond, the pearl, and the grape their value, great storytellers turn their struggle into strength, conflict into confidence, and tension into triumph. As it turns out, we tell stories not only as a survival instinct, but to leave a legacy for the next generation. The theme of struggle and redemption is as old as civilization itself. According to Dr. Richard Tedeschi and Dr. Lawrence Calhoun, the cathartic or transformative consequences of human suffering are themes in Greek tragedy. 
In fact, literature throughout the world for a few thousand years in all its various forms has attempted to come to grips with the possibilities for meaning and change emerging from the struggle with tragedy, suffering, and loss. Tedeschi and Calhoun are psychology professors at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. They are pioneers in the field of post-traumatic growth. The researchers study how traumatic experiences like an illness, loss of a loved one, abuse, lead many people to reframe those events and to find meaning and purpose in their lives because of the event. They turn trauma to their advantage and in doing so become better people and better storytellers. In Calhoun and Tedeschi's post-traumatic growth model, a person experiences what they call a seismic event that disrupts their internal narrative, the story they expected their life to take. The event leads to what the professors call rumination, where they turn things over in their minds to make sense of the event. Rumination is finally followed by self-disclosure, where they become comfortable writing and talking about the event and telling the story about those events. They're also eager to share how the event changed them for the better. Human beings are natural storytellers. Our brains love and need a good rags-to-riches story. In 1993, Dr. Dan McAdams, professor of human development at Northwestern University, published The Stories We Live By. Based on 10 years of research, he explores how our personal myths, internal narratives, form our identity. He says the human mind is first and foremost a vehicle for storytelling. We are born with a narrating mind. McAdams identified several components of storytelling that even internal narratives must share. They are characters, a hero and a villain, conflict, and yes, even a happy ending. When something traumatic happens in our lives, our brains kick into storytelling mode, crafting a narrative where we, the heroes, emerge happier, better adjusted, more enlightened, or improved in some way. There's a good reason why humans are hardwired to share stories and to enjoy listening to stories. We need to. Stories not only ensure our survival as a species, they help us on a personal level to make sense of the negative events all of us inevitably experience. Turning negatives into positives is so important to our survival and happiness, we even play the role of screenwriters in our life narrative, revising, retooling, and reworking the script. Every story, even the stories we tell ourselves, require a hero, a struggle, and a happy ending. Heroes challenge us to reframe our internal narrative. Our internal narrative shapes our destiny. A good story, as we've already discussed, requires a struggle and a villain to overcome. When Darren Hardy was in the 11th grade, a teacher told him, success is not in your DNA. With that statement, Hardy's teacher unwittingly cast herself as a villain in Hardy's life narrative. So if McAdams' theory is correct, Hardy should revisit his life story and craft an internal narrative that would give the event purpose and meaning, and he would do it in the years of middle adulthood, according to McAdams' theory. And that's exactly what Hardy does in his book, The Entrepreneur Roller Coaster, written at the age of 44. According to Hardy, no, my DNA wasn't special. You were the creator of your destiny. The mindset of, they were born to be successful and I am not, is a trick of the imagination. It's a trap of the worst kind. And the only way to escape it is by creating a success destiny mindset. Hardy reinforces his narrative with stories of heroes who did not have the right education, the right connections, and who could have been counted out early as not having the DNA for success. For example, Darren Hardy writes, Richard Branson has dyslexia and had poor academic performance as a student. Steve Jobs was born to two college students who did not want to raise him and gave him up for adoption. Mark Cuban was born to an automobile upholsterer. 
He started as a bartender, then got a job in software sales from which he was fired. The list goes on. Hardy reminds his readers that Susie Orman's dad was a chicken farmer. Retired General Colin Powell was a solid C student. Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, was born in a housing authority in the Bronx. Barbara Corcoran started as a waitress and admits to being fired for more jobs than most people hold in a lifetime. Pete Cashmore, the CEO of Mashable, was sickly as a child and finished high school two years late due to medical complications. He never went to college. What do each of these inspiring leaders and storytellers have in common? They rewrote their own internal narratives and found great success. According to Chris Matthews in his book, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero, the biographies of all heroes contain common elements. Becoming one is the most important. He reminds readers that the young John F. Kennedy was a sickly child and bedridden for much of his youth. And what did he do? while setting school records for being in the infirmary. Young John Kennedy read voraciously. And he read the stories of heroes in the pages of books by Sir Walter Scott and the tales of King Arthur. He read and dreamed of playing the hero in the story of his life. When the time came to take the stage, Jack was ready. At 2.30 a.m. on the night of August 2, 1943, Kennedy, the skipper of a PT boat on patrol during World War II, got the chance to play the hero in his own life story. An enemy destroyer rammed the boat and split it in half. Two members of the 13-man crew were killed. One man was terribly injured and would certainly die if left on his own to swim to safety. Kennedy took a strap of the man's life jacket, put it between his teeth, and swam four hours to a tiny, uninhabited island that was only 70 yards wide. According to Chris Matthews, with the physical courage of which he had shown himself to be capable, Jack Kennedy had turned his years of frailty and private suffering into a personal and public confidence that would move him forward. Stories of heroes and heroic actions challenge us to remake our own internal narratives. In March 2015, Disney released a live-action remake of Cinderella. It would lead the box office in its first week and become one of the top-grossing films ever to be released in March. Some executives, even within Disney, said they were surprised at the outcome because, as one distribution chief said, people already know what the story is. Well, my two girls were in that camp, but knowing the story didn't stop them from bringing Daddy to watch the film twice. It's hard for anyone to ignore a Cinderella story. The movie begins with Ella living a charmed life. Conflict is introduced when Ella's father dies, and she's forced to live with her wicked stepmother and her devious daughters, who give her the name Cinderella because, as a servant doing the chores, her face is covered in ash. Although success does not seem to be in her DNA, Ella meets her prince loses her prince, right, that's the conflict, and ultimately finds her prince again, lives happily ever after. In one of the last scenes of the movie, Ella embraces her name for the first time and calls herself Cinderella. What has she done? She has reframed her personal narrative to give those ashes a new meaning. Yes, the story is timeless because it perfectly matches the way our brains are built to consume and enjoy content. As Emory University neuroscientist Gregory Burns points out in his book, Satisfaction, the road to satisfying experiences must necessarily pass through the terrain of discomfort. Our personal narratives and the characters in those stories form our identities. The reason why rags-to-riches stories will never get old is that our brains are hardwired to love them. We derive meaning from our lives in the form of story. We create internal narratives to shape our identity and to give our lives purpose and meaning so we can leave a legacy. Storytelling is not something we do. Storytelling makes us who we are. The Storyteller's Secret 
Inspiring storytellers reframe their personal narratives to give their lives purpose and meaning. In doing so, they motivate the rest of us to dream bigger and to accomplish everything we're capable of achieving. Chapter 25 The Hospital Steve Jobs Would Have Built I can hardly imagine medicine without medical stories. Dr. Oliver Sacks If the Apple Store were a hospital, it would look like the Walnut Hill Medical Center in the heart of Dallas. In April 2014, the media reported on the opening of a new eight-story, 16-bed acute care hospital in North Dallas. The media accounts also made note of the fact that Walnut Hill has a 10-bed emergency room and four cardiac care suites. Those are the facts. The facts make Walnut Hill sound just like any other hospital. The facts, however, don't tell the story. The facts don't explain why it's harder to get a job at Walnut Hill than it is to be accepted to Harvard. The facts do not explain why the hospital is different from nearly every hospital you've ever seen. Attracting visitors from as far away as China who want to learn its secrets. The facts do not explain how the hospital is reimagining healthcare. Facts need storytellers to breathe life into them. And at Walnut Hill, a Dallas cardiologist serves as the hospital's chief storyteller. Every two weeks, Dr. Rich Guerra kicks off an orientation for new employees. Guerra's presentation is intended to motivate the men and women who have chosen to devote their work to this particular hospital. Today I want to share the story of how we got here and why we do what we do, Guerra begins. For the next 60 minutes, Guerra takes his audience on a narrative journey that pulls back the curtain on the hospital's vision and how its employees can work together to reinvent and reimagine the hospital experience. Patients who enter Walnut Hill instantly discover that it's unlike any hospital they've entered. A valet takes the car and warmly greets the patient, providing clear information on where to go next. Since the valet is the first and the last person the patient sees, the valets are especially trained in customer service skills. In fact, regardless of position, everyone at the hospital is trained in hospitality. The Storyteller's Tools the first 15 minutes of Dr. Guerra's presentation is not about the hospital. He tells stories about other brands, the Apple Store, the Ritz-Carlton, Zappos, Disney, Starbucks, and Virgin. By doing so, he helps his audience understand how these brands reinvented their categories. And by using similar hospitality techniques, Walnut Hill will reinvent healthcare. Guerra explains that Disney's mission, for example, is not to build theme parks. It's to create happiness. The Ritz-Carlton is not in the business of providing beds for heads, but it's in the business of fulfilling the expressed and unexpressed wishes of their guests. Starbucks is not in the business of coffee as much as it's in the business to inspire and nurture the human spirit. So according to Guerra, he tells his audience, let's think about what we do in medicine. We're there at the beginning of life. We're there at the very end. We're about enriching lives. It's the core of everything we do. Once Guerra's audiences learn about the brands that inspired Walnut Hill, they're more likely to understand the reason behind strategies like the 15-5 rule. At 15 feet from a patient or a visitor, an employee should make eye contact. At 5 feet, the employee should greet and say hello to the patient, or if the patient looks confused, ask if he or she needs help. Guerra explains that the hospital adopted the strategy from studying hospitality techniques at hotel chains, like Marriott. Most people have sat through orientation at a school or a business. In most cases, they're handed a packet of information. They're encouraged to read it. If the purpose, however, is to motivate people to perform specific activities in their day-to-day -day roles, packets are far less effective than stories. Guerra's orientation presentation at Walnut Hill is actually similar to what Disney does. 
in their program called Traditions that all new employees, cast members, are required to attend. As one training facilitator noted, the goal of Traditions is not to put people in Disney. It's to put Disney in people. And it does so by tapping existing cast members or employees who consider it an honor to share their stories during orientation. Don't underestimate the power of a good orientation program to create a portrait of the organization and its culture, according to one facilitator at the Disney Institute. While the history, mission, and values of your business may be as familiar as a favorite childhood story to you, chances are good that your new employees have never heard them. We're not smashing rocks. We're building a cathedral. Returning to Walnut Hill, every employee is given a name badge with his or her photo. On the back of the badge, they find six steps of service defined by the acronym WECARE, W-E-C-A-R-E. Each employee is trained to follow six steps in every interaction, beginning with W, warm welcome, E, empathize, C, communicate and connect, A, address concerns, R, resolve and reassure, and finally E, end with a fond farewell. Those steps of service, by the way, were directly inspired by the Ritz-Carlton and the Apple Store, both of which have successfully adopted similar steps to elevate the customer experience. If new employees were simply handed a document or a badge with the steps of service and asked to follow them, the strategy would surely fail to have its intended effect. People follow guidelines to keep their jobs, but people will go above and beyond expectations when their work has meaning. And as Dr. Rich Guerra has learned, stories carry meaning. Stories evoke emotions that make people feel more deeply, making them more likely to internalize the habits and practices that will move the brand forward. Guerra expertly blends stories of real employees delivering exceptional service, along with fables like the following. Imagine living in medieval times and you're traveling through the countryside. There's all sorts of dust, noise, and activity. You come across a man with a sledgehammer and he's smashing rocks. What's going on here, you ask? The man responds, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm breaking rocks. You continue on your way and find another man who's got a sledgehammer and he's breaking rocks. What's going on here, you ask? The man responds, I'm making a living. You walk further down the road and you see a man doing the same thing. He's got a sledgehammer and he's smashing rocks. What's going on here, you ask? I'm building a cathedral. This man, according to Dr. Guerra, does not see what he is doing as trivial. He is part of something bigger. At Walnut Hill, we don't want people who are here to break rocks. And if you're here to make a living, this place probably isn't the best fit for you. If you're here to do something great, this is the place to be. Let's take note of two elements from Dr. Guerra's story. First, it's short. Guerra tells the story or this fable of the man and the sledgehammer in under 60 seconds. Second, he quickly ties the story back to the role of the audience and the role that they'll play in creating patient experiences. In a paper titled An Integrative Review of Storytelling, Professor Robert Gill makes the case that leaders who tell corporate stories strengthen employee engagement, which improves a company's external reputation. Employees who internalize the company's vision through stories become what Gill calls reputation champions. According to Gill, stories enable staff to identify with the narrator on a personal level and through their interpretation take a form of ownership over how the brand is represented. Stories can be used in organizations as a means to motivate people and create a message memorable enough for people to take cause and action. Walnut Hill staff have certainly become reputation champions. Word of mouth began to spread less than one year after the hospital opened its doors. 
Walnut Hill received 9,000 applications in its first year. Only 3.2% of applicants were selected to work there, making Walnut Hill harder to get into than Harvard. Stories give science its soul. Oliver Sacks was one of the great medical minds of our time. You might remember the movie that made him famous, Awakenings, starring Robin Williams as the doctor who discovered L-Dopa, a form of dopamine, as a therapy for patients who had been stuck in a catatonic state for decades. The movie was based on Oliver Sacks' book of the same name. Sacks described Awakenings not as a medical book, but a book of 20 biographies. We can also say a book of 20 stories. Sachs grew up in a family of physicians. The talk around the dinner table every night took the form of stories, stories of real doctors seeing real patients. Their stories fascinated and frightened the young Sachs, and they led him to pursue a career in medicine. Oliver Sachs once said, The hunger for narrative in stories has been very strong for me, and it's a necessity for everyone. In medical school, Sachs's professor saw cases. Sachs saw people, and he wanted to know their stories. He once said, I retain very little memory of the medical lectures there, but on the other hand, I remember all the patients I saw. Sachs became a vocal proponent of narrative medicine. His famous book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales, is a series of stories from Sachs's work as a neurosurgeon. Each of us is a biography, a story, he wrote. Biologically, physiologically, we are not so different from each other. Historically, as narratives, we are each of us unique. Sachs argues that empirical science takes no account of the soul. Stories bring soul to the human condition. In healthcare, storytelling leads to more effective diagnosis and treatment. In organizations of any kind, storytelling creates brand champions who are motivated to deliver exceptional service and exceptional treatment to every customer and every patient. The Storyteller's Secret Successful leaders motivate their teams with stories that paint the picture behind the organization's mission, purpose, and vision. People don't care about how they're supposed to do their jobs until they understand why they're doing it. Chapter 26 a hotel mogul turns 12,000 employees into customer service heroes. Storytelling has changed my business and changed my life. Steve Wynn Steve and his wife married when they were very young. They were broke and didn't have enough money for a honeymoon. When Steve was presented with the opportunity to oversee a small business transaction in Las Vegas, he decided to give his wife the trip she deserved. Little did he know that the short adventure would transform the very city they were visiting. The couple decided to enjoy Thanksgiving of 1965 in Palm Springs before heading to Vegas. They had chosen to have dinner at a restaurant called Ruby's Dunes. By chance and a stroke of luck, Frank Sinatra was dining at the next table and walked over to say hello to the businessman who had invited Steve to develop a new hotel on the Vegas Strip. What hotel are you staying at in Las Vegas? The famous crooner asked the young couple. We're staying at the Dunes, Steve responded. No, you won't. You'll be staying at the Sands, as my guest, Sinatra offered. He also invited the couple to a show. When Steve and his wife, Elaine, arrived at the nightclub in Vegas, they were escorted to the front row to watch the biggest act in America at that time, the Rat Pack. Joining Sinatra on stage were Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. The couple sat next to the biggest Hollywood stars at that time. Lucille Ball, Elizabeth Taylor, Gregory Peck, Roger Moore. The act was like one big party, because the performers knew just about everyone in the audience. As Sinatra was working the room, he spotted Steve and said, how do you like the seat, kid? Steve had no intention of staying in Las Vegas. 
The 23-year-old simply wanted to take his wife on a vacation, but the experience so moved him that he decided he'd stay. And over the next 50 years, Steve Wynn would transform Las Vegas from a seedy backwater town with a few motels and casinos in the middle of a desert to the gambling and resort mecca it is today. Wynn built the Mirage in 1989 with a price tag of $600 million. It was the most expensive hotel of its time. He subsequently topped it with Bellagio. Today, Wynn is the founder and chairman of Wynn Resorts, overseeing hotels that bear his name in Las Vegas and Macau, China. You'd think that a hotel mogul worth $4 billion would know everything about the hospitality business. Wynn sure does know a lot, but he admits he only recently discovered the secret that changed my life and my business. Wynn calls the secret his competitive edge. The secret is storytelling. The Storyteller's Tools To understand how storytelling transformed Wynn's hospitality business, you need to understand what Wynn calls the strongest force in the universe. Self-esteem. According to Steve Wynn, if you can make someone else feel good about themselves, they will love you for it. They will be loyal to you. If you get someone to feel better about themselves, you've hit the jackpot. That's a dead-on bullseye in human relations. Steve Wynn discovered a technique that I've been recommending since I wrote my sixth book, The Apple Experience. I call it Wow Stories. Here's how it works at Wynn Resorts. It had been standard practice at Wynn's properties that every department supervisor call a meeting before every shift. For example, the restaurant managers would meet with waiters, the chefs, with the line cooks, the housekeeping supervisors, with the maids, etc. At first, the meetings were strictly tactical, a means of sharing information for employees to do their job that day. Several years ago, though, Wynn started something new and astonishingly effective. Astonishing because it's simple, it's free, and it works like magic. The supervisor simply asks this question of the team. Does anybody have a story about a great customer experience they'd like to share? In one of the first storytelling meetings, a bellman told the following story. A couple had checked into the hotel. The bellman asked them if they had all the bags on the cart. The woman panicked as she realized she had left the bag with her medicines on a table in the hallway of their house. Her husband was a diabetic. He needed insulin. She also required prescription medicines. The bellman asked where they lived. Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles, the woman responded. Is anyone at the house, the bellman asked. The housekeeper will be there today. My brother lives in Encino. It's not too far from your house. If someone's home, he can pick up the medicine bag, the bellman offered. But we need the medicine by tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., the woman said. Don't worry, said the bellman. You'll have it. Now go enjoy a nice dinner and a good night's sleep. The bellman had just started his late afternoon shift. He called his brother to make the arrangements and asked his supervisor if he could drive to his brother's house in Encino. The bellman retrieved the bag of medicine and returned to Las Vegas at 4 in the morning. The couple had their medication at 7 a.m. when they woke up. According to Steve Wynn, do you think the hotel will ever be the same for that couple again? Forget the crystal chandeliers, the onyx, the marble, the hand-woven carpets. Those mean nothing. They're going to tell their friends about what an incredible place the hotel is. I've got 12,000 employees looking for a story. Within minutes of the bellman telling a story, the marketing team at the hotel recorded it, posted the video on the company's intranet. Then they made a large poster with the employee's face on it and the story. They posted it in the staff room. What happened next is easy to predict, but profound in its implications. Employees began looking for their own stories to tell. Why? Because, as Steve Wynn suggested, the most powerful force in the universe is self-esteem. 
They want to be recognized in front of their peers. According to Steve Wynn, now I've got 12,000 employees looking for a story, someone to help. For example, a dealer on break might notice someone who looks lost and walk that person to the right place. It might take him five minutes, but he's got a story, says Wynn. He's going up on the Internet tomorrow. He's going to be a hero. It's the power that makes a guy like me sleep good at night, says Wynn. Wynn can sleep comfortably because he has the confidence that thousands of employees around the world will be taking the steps necessary to create exceptional customer experiences. They want to be the hero of their own story. According to Steve Wynn, when employees believe they're being treated fairly for a job, money doesn't become the number one issue for them. They want to be happy. They want to feel as though their role has meaning. They want to be celebrated. Storytelling does just that. Raise a person's self-esteem, and according to Wynn, you'll have plugged into the ultimate energy available on this planet. The Storyteller's Secret Successful leaders use storytelling to build great cultures. Culture is created by loyal, frontline employees who are passionate about delivering an exceptional service to every customer every time. Getting employees to see themselves as the hero of their own customer story is the magic to creating an unbeatable culture. Chapter 27 A Revolutionary Idea That Took Off on the Back of a Napkin If something can't be explained on the back of an envelope, it's rubbish. Richard Branson The St. Anthony Hotel in San Antonio, Texas, has a long and storied history. President Lyndon B. Johnson spent his honeymoon there. And the first movie to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Wings, was filmed on the property. But its most famous story, perhaps, involved neither presidents nor Hollywood. It happened in the hotel's restaurant, the St. Anthony Club. One day in 1966, two men met for drinks at the hotel's bar. One was a Texas businessman, the other a chain-smoking, whiskey-swigging lawyer. Herb Kelleher and Rollin King had been kicking around a business plan, which they now sketched on the back of a cocktail napkin. First, one of the men drew a triangle in the center of the napkin. At the top of the triangle, they wrote Dallas. On the bottom left, San Antonio. And on the bottom right, Houston. Their vision was simple, to create a small, local airline that connected those three Texas cities. That business plan, sketched on the back of a St. Anthony Hotel cocktail napkin, would transform the lives of millions of Americans. One year later, March 15, 1967, their vision came to life as Southwest Airlines. Today, the original napkin sits under glass in the Dallas headquarters of Southwest. The company has come a long way. Southwest is the world's largest airline, employing 46,000 people, carrying more than 100 million passengers a year, and it generates billions of dollars in quarterly profit. This in an industry where profits are hard to find. Southwest democratized the skies. In the 1960s, 80% of Americans had never flown on an airplane. Only wealthy business people could afford a ticket. As airfares dropped thanks to the Southwest model, more and more people took flight, and today a full 90% of Americans have flown on an airplane. Americans make 700 million plane trips every year. If you also consider the fact that pilots have never been better trained and that flying has never been safer, the golden age of travel isn't yesterday, it's today. And much of the credit goes to Herb Kelleher, Roland King, and the business plan that fit on a napkin. The Storyteller's Tools Many businesses have tried to figure out the secret to Southwest success. We used to have a corporate day, said Kelleher. Companies would come in from around the world, and they were interested in how we hired, trained, that sort of thing. Then we'd say, treat your people well, and they'll treat you well. And then they go home disappointed. It was too simple. Culture matters at Southwest. 
Competitors can buy tangible assets, said Kelleher, but they can't buy culture. Kelleher made what he called an audacious commitment to put employees first, customers second, and shareholders third. To this day, employees can recite Kelleher's core mantra, if employees took care of him, he would take care of them. Unlike most leaders who give lip service to the importance of culture, Herb Kelleher talked about it incessantly. In many of his public presentations to shareholders and employees, culture was all he talked about. As a storyteller, Kelleher understood that culture is not something that a committee brainstorms every once in a while and moves on. Instead, culture is a story that must be shared every day. In one interview, a reporter asked Kelleher why it was so hard for competing airlines to copy the Southwest model and its success. Kelleher explained the difference in a story. I think the difficulty for them is the cultural aspect of it. That cannot be duplicated. One of the things that demonstrates the power of people is when the United Shuttle took out after us in Oakland. They had all the advantages. I mean, they had first-class seats for those who don't want to fly anything but first-class. They had a global frequent flyer program, which we did not have. They probably spent $25 million or $30 million on their advertising campaign. I probably have something like a thousand letters in my office that tell you why they finally receded from Oakland. And those letters say, Herb, I tried them, but I just like your people more, so I'm back. Don't ever doubt in the customer service business the importance of people and their attitudes. As Southwest grew larger, many experts assumed it would become more difficult to maintain that company's friendly, empowered, and productive employee base. But Herb Kelleher disagreed. Our mission statement is eternal, he said. Our mission statement deals solely with people. That never changes in any way, shape, or form. Stories turn employees into crusaders. Culture stories are more impactful when they're shared among employees. One of Kelleher's storytelling tools was to perform simple gestures that would ripple across the organization. Herb Kelleher once said, One of the things that we do is continue to emphasize that we value our people as people, not just as workers. Any event that you have in your life that is celebratory in nature or brings grief, you hear from Southwest Airlines. If you lose a relative, you'll hear from us. If you're out sick with a serious illness, you'll hear from us. And I mean by telephone, by letter, by remembrances from us. If you have a baby, you hear from us. What we're trying to say to our people is, hey, wait a second. We value you as a total person, not just between eight and five. When an employee gets a handwritten note or a call from the boss, that person tells another person who tells another, who tells another. Stories perpetuate themselves and bolster a company's culture. I spoke to a Southwest pilot who repeats a story he had heard 10 years earlier. It's the time Kelleher found out that an employee's son had been killed in a car crash. The employee was in Baltimore, and his family was in Dallas. Kelleher had a plane that was to be taken out of service for routine maintenance, and he had it rerouted to land in Baltimore, pick up the employee, and get him back to his family immediately. The pilot told me, Stories like that make me proud to work for this company. Public stories rally people around a common purpose. After building one of America's most admired companies, Kelleher stepped down in 2007. The pilots, flight attendants, and ramp crews who remember Kelleher's stories are actually among the most loyal employees you will find at any company, in any industry, in any country. But what about the thousands of employees hired every year who do not have the benefit of hearing the founder's stories directly? A paycheck is usually enough to get people to work on time, but only an inspiring purpose behind a paycheck will encourage people to go the extra mile. According to Southwest CEO Gary Kelly, a company's purpose should answer the question, why do we exist? And Gary Kelly says, at Southwest, 
We exist to connect people to what's important in their lives through friendly, reliable, and low-cost air travel. Only storytelling can rally passionate people around a common purpose. Every week, Gary Kelly gives a shout-out, public praise, to employees who have gone above and beyond to show great customer service. Each month, the Southwest Spirit magazine features the story of an employee who has gone above and beyond. Southwest highlights positive behaviors through a variety of recognition programs and awards. Finally, internal corporate videos are filled with real examples and stories to help employees visualize what each step of the purpose looks and feels like.